Turn in the Word of God with me to two, test, uh, two passages, first from the Old Testament in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. This is God's Word. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion." I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. And then turn with me to the New Testament in Matthew 22. Matthew 22 the very end of the chapter where Jesus asks his own question. He had been asked three questions by his opponents earlier in the chapter. If you look at verse 17, here's the first question. What thinkest thou, they said, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? He answered the question. Then the second question in verse 28, they conclude their statement to Jesus and their hypothetical scenario with this question in verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. And he answered that question. And then, in verse 36, another question. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And he answered that question in the summary of the law that we read every Sunday morning. Now, In the part of the chapter that we read, 41 to the end, Jesus asks his own question. This is the Word of God, 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, and now he quotes from the Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And now Jesus again puts this question to his opponents. If David then call him Lord, how is he David's son? 
And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now turn with me in the Psalter to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13, based on passages like these, where the Catechism is explaining the different phrases in the Apostles' Creed, and we come up to the phrase, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. In Lord Day 13, on page 8 in the back of the Psalter, question 33, why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. 34, wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? Because He hath redeemed us both soul and body from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us His own property. As Matthew 22 indicates, it's possible to ask what appears at first hearing to be a good question, but then at second hearing, you realize is a very, very bad question. It might be a bad question because it misses the point, and it might be a bad question because its intent is to cause someone to stumble, and maybe those go together. I say it's possible to ask a question that at first hearing sounds like a good question, but at second hearing you realize is a bad question. And that was the case with these three questions that preceded Jesus' question to them. And they were evil for both those reasons. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to trap Jesus. And so in verse 17 of Matthew 22, what do you think, Jesus? Is it lawful to pay taxes? And Jesus, knowing the proverb that sometimes you answer a fool according to his folly and other times you don't answer a fool according to his folly, decided here to answer them. And when he answered them, the Sadducees came and asked him a question. A man, a woman had not one wife, not one husband, but two husbands, but five husbands, but seven husbands. In the resurrection, they asked him, who will be her husband? And Jesus, sorting out the question, do I answer or do I not, knew immediately he ought to answer. And then, when the Pharisees saw that he put the Sadducees to shame, they came and asked him another question. What's the great commandment of the law? And Jesus answered that question. All of them intended to trip Jesus up, and all of them the wrong question. The right question Jesus put to them, what do you think? I want you to know. I want to ask you. The Christ, whose son is he? The Messiah. And now, to put that in context of our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, 
That was what we looked at in Lord's Day 12. In Lord's Day 11, we asked the question, what does the name Jesus mean? In 12, what does the title Christ mean? And now in 13, why do you call him the only begotten Son of God, our Lord? Jesus connected these two when he put that question to the Pharisees, the Christ, the Messiah, Lord's Day 12. Whose son is he? And when the Pharisees, because they knew the Scripture, answered, he's the son of David, Jesus said, and now I have another question for you. If he's the son of David, how is it that David calls his son Lord? And then he quoted David in Psalm 110, where the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Jehovah God said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. David's son was also David's Lord. And that showed the Pharisees that David's son was more than David's son. He was also the son of God. And that's what we must hear this morning as we study the next Lord's Day of the Catechism. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God? Since we also are children of God. And then the answer, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, we are adopted by grace for His sake. And then, because He's the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, He's also our Lord. And that's the uh, 34th question and answer that we'll come to at the end of the second point. So we have to put this question to ourselves personally. And it's the intent of the sermon this morning, not merely to fill your head with the information that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so you could answer someone who asks you the question, But it's the intent of the sermon this morning that all of us have this question put to us personally. What do you think of the Christ? Who do you say He is? What confession will you make of Him? Not just now, but when you go home. And will you do Him the honor that is due to Him, as Psalm 2 puts it, by kissing Him? Will you give Him the kiss that the only begotten Son of God deserves to receive from you? Or will you be the object of His anger and you perish from the way when He takes out His rod and destroys His enemies to smithereens and breaks them to shivers like a potter's vessel? What will you do with the Christ? That's the question. Will you confess Him, believe Him, trust Him, obey Him, That's the kiss of honor that we come to at the very end of the sermon this morning. And that's what all of this is aiming at. Not merely that we know intellectually who He is, but in our hearts believe Him, trust Him, and confess Him. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God the Son. And that's why the theme of the sermon this morning is formulated that way. Not the Son of God, but God the Son. Christ is God the Son. Let's see his identity, let's see his work, and let's see his honor. That is the honor that we ought to give to him. And by identity, I mean unique identity. He's not like you and I are, sons of God. And then his work that's valuable because he's the son of God, which gives our work value, 
That will be the second point. And then in the third place, the special honor that must be given to him that's given to no one else. His identity, his work, and his honor. There are three things that we need to say about the identity of the Son of God. First of all, that he is the only begotten Son of God. Only begotten Son of God. Say those words. Remember what you say every Sunday evening with the Apostles' Creed and repeat them now in your own mind and heart. Only begotten Son of God. He is a Son, I say again, in a way that you and I are not, in the way that you and I cannot be, and in the way no one else shall ever be. He is the only begotten Son of God of God. You realize that even among us there are different ways to have sons. All of us know that there are two obvious ways that many of us have sons and daughters by natural birth, the conception of husband and wife bringing forth their own children. There are some of us who have sons or daughters by adoption, and that's a second way to have a son, and adoption is mentioned in the Lord's Day. But then there's even a way to have a son that we don't think of very often, but is true in a general way. A relationship that an adult may have, parents, a family may have with someone who moves into the area and lives with them. Or the relationship that we at the seminary sometimes have with our students. At the end of four years or six years after having lived with them, coming to know them, We look at them as our own sons, and sometimes that's reciprocated, and they treat us as their fathers. We love them, and they love us. There's another way to have, as it were, a son. Natural birth by adoption, or in that way of affinity. So we understand that there are different ways to have sons or daughters, even in earthly existence. There are different ways in which God has children, and He has one son who's only begotten. That's why the Apostles' Creed says what it does. And I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. When the Gospel according to John, now I'm going to give proof from the Old Testament and the New, first new, when the Gospel according to John at the very beginning speaks of Jesus John says, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father. You read that in verse 14, you read that again in verse 18. And then, when John comes to John 3, verse 16, in the history of Nicodemus, Jesus said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that He gave, here it is again, His only begotten Son. And those are words that need to ring in our ears, only begotten. But if any of you use another translation of the Bible, and it's not bad to use other translations as commentaries and compare them to the Bible we use in worship, then you'll probably notice that both the NIV and the ESV, the most popular Bible translations beside the King James Version, don't translate John 3.16 that way. And other translations of the Bible, too, not as common or popular, also do that, making a very, very serious mistake. They translate it, God so loved the world that He gave His 
only Son, or one and only Son, or unique Son. And that's a bad translation. It's a wrong translation. That's not what the original says. The original says His only begotten Son. And then you need to know what those churches do with the Heidelberg Catechism and the Apostles' Creed. Probably they change the wording there too because of their mistranslation of John 3.16 and John 1.18 also. Fact of the matter, Jesus isn't God's only Son, His one and only Son. You and you and I and millions of others are God's sons by adoption. Not naturally, though. And it's this expression, His only begotten Son, that gives the unique identity to Him so that He has a place in the family of God unlike anyone else who has a place in the family of God. The whole of the Christian religion really depends on this. And we're going to come to that later on in this first point, too. You need to see this expression in its importance. That comes out in the Old Testament too. All the teaching in the New Testament has its source in the Old Testament. What we read in Psalm 2 verse 7 is that source. In Psalm 2 verse 7, we read about the Christ, I will declare the decree, the Lord, that is Jehovah God, hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Jehovah God begat Jesus Christ, gave Him existence from His very being. And that's what we need to understand about that Son of God, Jesus, who came in the flesh. He is a Son of God unlike all of us because He and He alone came from the very being of God. Now when we have sons or daughters by adoption, They are our sons and daughters, just as much as, but they didn't come from our being. When a man and a woman come together and unite in marriage, what they produce from the womb of the mother is flesh of their flesh and bone of their bone. They are, in a very real sense, you with another person that God gives to them. You are there in them. And that's why they look like you. And that's why their nature is your nature. And you understand them in their strengths and in their weaknesses because they come from your very being. And that's true of God and God's Son. He came from the being of God. He is therefore God. And he looks like God. He has the same nature as God and all the attributes of God. So that what Jesus was and is, is God. God. And so the Nicene Creed, that other confession of faith that's like the Apostles' Creed, but adds to it, says about Jesus, he is of the same substance with the Father. What the Father is, the Son is. And you can't say that about you and me. That's first. His identity is He is the only begotten Son of God. 
Secondly, He is the eternal Son of God. And by that we mean that there was never a time when He wasn't the Son of God. Now, we're talking about Jesus as a man who as a man did have a beginning. He was born of the Virgin Mary, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Some 2,000 years ago, the man Jesus began to exist, but not Jesus as the Son of God. He always was there. He was begotten before He was born. He was begotten in eternity. He always did exist. And that's why when you read the Gospel according to John, and you always realize that John sees deeper than Matthew or Mark or Luke, has insights that they didn't have given him by the Holy Spirit. When he talks about the origins of Jesus in his first chapter, doesn't talk about Jesus in the stable of Bethlehem, but begins in verse 1 of John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. And that Word, who always was, 2,000 years ago now for us, came down from heaven and became flesh in a man. But He always existed. That's the teaching of Psalm 2 that we read also. Think of Psalm 2. The anointed Christ. He holds a scepter. He wields a rod of iron with which He'll destroy His enemies. He'll save His people. He's king. About Him, Psalm 2 says... This is my Son, I have begotten Him this day. Now I paraphrase that to emphasize this day, and you mustn't misunderstand this day. What the psalmist means when he says this day is the eternal day. The day in which God's decree was formulated. And His decree is eternal, and therefore the begetting of Jesus is eternal. This is not a hard theological point to make. You must merely think carefully about it. The one who came from the very being of God, so that He's the Son of God, identified with God, was always begotten by God. There never was a time when He wasn't begotten of God. And even when Acts 13 quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, as a proof of Jesus' divinity. Now you have to think. It wasn't to prove that He's the Son of God. No, it was to prove Him to be the Son of God by the resurrection. Let me be, let me be more careful. When Acts 13 quotes this passage in support of the teaching that God raised Jesus from the dead. He doesn't mean there that Jesus became the Son of God when God raised Him from the dead. But that raising Him from the dead proved that He was. Here's the main point. He always was. Number one, the only begotten Son of God. Number two, the eternal Son of God. And now number three, God the Son. You can never turn it around for you. You may never turn it around for me. 
We may say about ourselves, sons of God, daughters of God, but you may never say about you, God the Son. But when you stand before Jesus, you must say, God the Son. He's the Son of God, but He's God the Son. Put it that way. Think about that very carefully. Think about that very carefully because of modernism's denial of the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son of God. And from that point of view, there's something to the translation in the newer Bibles that call Him the unique Son of God. That's good. It's bad that they don't say that He's the only begotten Son of God. It is right that they identify Him as a Son of God unlike any of us. Because modernism today is saying, and you'll hear this in the Jehovah's Witnesses, but that's bleeding into conservative Christianity that you and I are sons of God and Jesus is a son of God, but the greatest of all the sons of God. And that the only thing different about Him is that He was the Son of God before we were sons of God and He's more like God than we are, but there's only a relative difference between His sonship and our sonship. And our objection to that must be as severe as it possibly can be and as strong as we are able to exert ourselves in it. He is God the Son. God the Son. And you are sons of God. And that difference comes out in a very interesting historical incident at the time of the Reformation when Calvin in Geneva faced the heretic Servetus. You perhaps remember the name Servetus. Servetus, you remember probably, because he was executed at the stake for his heresy. Part of his heresy was that he denied that Jesus was God the Son. And the story goes, we think it's something like this, that as Servetus was being led to be executed at the stake, Calvin walked with him as a good pastor ought to do and said, Servetus, confess Christ. And Servetus said, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Calvin said to Servetus, no, confess the truth about Christ. And Servetus would only say, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He would not say, Jesus Christ is God the Son. Listen, listen to the teachers of your children from this pulpit or in the catechism room or in the classroom or in the Christian college. Listen to the teachers of your sons and daughters in the books that they read and listen to see whether they make only a relative difference between your sonship and mine and his. And if it's only a relative difference, And not this absolute difference. It's a heresy of the first magnitude. He is God the Son. God the Son. The difference between His Sonship and ours, though, and now we come to an end of the first point with this, does not diminish your Sonship. The fact that He is the only begotten Son of God doesn't mean that your sonship is unimportant any more than adopted son in a family must think he is something less a son than the natural born son in that same family. They are both sons. Sons. 
or daughters. They are. The adopted son has the name of God, the the name of his father put on him. The father identifies himself with that son, and God the Father puts his name upon us and identifies himself with us. He even does what an adoptive parent can't do. God the Father, having adopted us, conforms us to his image so that, like Christ, we begin to look like the Father in heaven. And others, when they see us in the world, say about us, I can recognize you as a son of God or a daughter of God. Don't in any way diminish the reality and the importance of your sonship in the family of God because Christ is the only begotten Son. And yet, He must have the preeminence. He is the firstborn from the dead that among all of the members of the family, we may give Him the preeminence and do in this family what no earthly family may ever do. Like Jacob, foolishly, choosing out of his 12 sons, one to have special, Joseph. You see what that did in that family? We parents learn that in our families, we must never choose one to be the special son. All of them are treated equally. But in God's family, one, one. According to Colossians 1 verse 18, among all of the sons has preeminence that all of the other sons and daughters may honor Him and give glory to Him. Now, it's because Jesus is the Son of God that He also is Lord and has a special work, a very important, unique work. Everything Jesus does, to put it differently, has an infinite value exactly because He is who He is. If the work that Jesus did were not the work of God the Son, it would not have the value that it has. And then I'll jump to the second half of this second point by saying, and all of you who are united to Him and labor in His name do a work that also has a high, high value unlike the work of anyone else who's not united to Him. His work has value because of who He is And our work has value because we are united to Him and we labor in His name. Let me spell that out for a moment. This comes up in connection with His Lordship. He's not only the only begotten Son of God, He is also Lord. And that raises the subject of redemption. The shedding of blood and the dying for us. Only begotten Son, our Lord. He's Lord of us because He bought us. Lord means master, owner, and He becomes our master and owner because He shed His own valuable blood. His blood is not valuable if it's not the blood of God the Son. He bought us. Think of the language of the catechism again. Let that ring in your ears 
be a part of your confession. He redeemed us, not just in your soul, but in your body. From all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. And hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and hath made us his own property. He owns us. He's master. He's Lord. Sometimes when we think of salvation and the work of the Lord Jesus, we narrow our focus too much and think only of the good things that he gives to us or the fact that when we die, we're not going to go to hell, that he's delivered us from the dominion of Satan so that we're not miserable slaves to sin. And we forget that having done that, he says, now, you're mine. You're my property. I own you. And I have the right to tell you what you ought to do, what you may do, what you must not do, how you must think, where you must go, exactly how you must live. That's the nature of the relationship between a Lord and those that that Lord owns. We don't have time this morning to get into that, but perhaps you've read about the Lordship controversy. Uh, 20 or so years ago in conservative evangelicalism where there were those Christians who were confessing that Jesus was Savior but denying that Jesus was Lord, not theologically or not in their words but in their conduct. He's delivered me from sin. He's delivered me from death. But he's not governor of my life. And that was called the lordship controversy. We would probably call it the antinomian controversy. Don't tell me what to do. Don't preach commands from the pulpit. Don't issue any musts to me. Well, here are the musts that come from Lord Jesus, who delivered you not only from your sin and the punishment of sin, but also made you body and soul his property and therefore has the right to tell you what you must do. And he does. And though he goes beyond that by making you willing to do what you must do, Psalm 110 verse 3, his people become willing in the day of his power. Nevertheless, he tells us how we ought to live And those commands come from the pulpit too. Exhortations and even threats. They'll come in the end of Psalm 2. Beware, beware. If you don't confess Him as Lord, beware. That's the Lordship of the Lord Jesus. You must. The gospel has commands. Now, back to the main point. The main point is, He couldn't have redeemed you had His blood not been the precious blood of God the Son. Read Acts 20. And verse 28, and that surrounding context, where the blood of God was shed for the people. The apostle said to the elders at Ephesus, the blood of God, that's what made it valuable. There have been many people who've shed their blood. You may shed your blood for your children. You may shed your blood for the church, but it does not have the value as the blood of the Son of God. Only that blood of God the Son, has the worth to purchase you and purchase me and make us his property. Valuable, precious blood. And so everything Jesus does is valuable. Has a value like the value of no one else's work in all of the world. Jesus stands among men as the only man whose work is really valuable 
And no one's work is valuable unless they do it who are connected to Him and do it in His name. But otherwise, His is the only work of value. That's why His Word has value. That's why His church is valuable. This is His special creation. And all of the commandments of Jesus are of special value. And so we can say with the psalmist in the Old Testament, I love them more than I love silver and gold. They're more precious to me than rubies and diamonds. And now, your work and my work as sons of God, adopted by grace, have a work that's also valuable. If you think of what the Apostle Peter said You recognize this language, but you didn't think of it in this context before. The Apostle Peter, in chapter 1, says that we were redeemed. There's the subject here. Redemption by the Lord so that we become His property. The Apostle Peter says, You know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There's the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. Precious blood. That's how we become His property. That's the cost that needed to be paid. But what you didn't notice, and I didn't either, is that we were redeemed from our vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Vain conversation is a very important expression. Conversation, we sometimes think of as speaking together. We have conversations in the fellowship hall after church. That's not the use of the word conversation in the Bible. It means walk of life, way of living, conduct. That's why the shoe company named itself what they did, converse. Not because you talk in their shoes, but because you walk in their shoes. Converse. And so that's how you remember that word in the New Testament, conversation, refers to the walk of life. Now, prior to being redeemed, we were in vain conversation. And vain means two things, empty and aimless. Both those come out in the New Testament word vain. The former walk of life of you in your unbelief was empty. It had no profit. It had no aim. What you did had no value at all. And now you've been redeemed from that vain, empty, aimless, useless walk. So that all of your work now, as you walk as a Christian has value. And everything you do, no matter how insignificant it may appear to you to be, as it's done in your union with the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and in His name, shall not lose its reward. It has value. Value. Remember when Jesus said that at the end of Matthew chapter 10? Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, I say to you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. 
Jesus picks here the most apparently insignificant act that a child of God can do. Take but a cup of water. Anyone can turn on the faucet, put a cup under it, and take some water and give it to someone else. Now give it to the most insignificant person in the congregation, a little one. Only a cup of water to a little one. Jesus says, you do that in my name, and you are doing a work of eternal value. It will not lose its reward. Your conversation, as you are united to him, and as you do your work in his name, is all of value. You mustn't ever think, people of God, that the only really valuable work that anyone does is the work of a minister, maybe an elder and a deacon, or a school teacher. Their work is very valuable. It is. It's important. We need it. But you mustn't so elevate their work that you think that your work has no value, no aim, no worth. You used to walk, have a conversation that was empty. It isn't empty any longer. He gives some examples of that, people of God. You think not only of that cup of cold water, but translate that now into New Testament language and practical life of the people of God. No one knows of that meal you brought to the widow or widower last week. But I tell you, only that meal done in the name of a disciple for the sake of Christ shall not lose its reward. It has value because you too are sons and daughters of God. And what you do in His name is worth something. The visit you make to the nursing home. The little song you sing to the lonely saint there with your little children that brightens their eyes. Or maybe you can't even realize or detect any response as value. It does. The handshake to that member after church who usually doesn't talk to anyone as value. The mothers who tomorrow morning change another diaper, stinky diaper, and put another load of laundry in the washing machine and prepare the lunches for the children to go to school and get ready another meal again for the husband when he comes home and sits down sometimes without gratitude. And then goes in the bathroom and on her knees scrubs the toilet and mops the floor and vacuums the carpets. All that work is a work of value because you are united to the Son of God whose precious blood was shed to you, for you to unite you to Him so that when you do your work in His name, it has value. You fathers who do your work that you might think is so menial, all it does is bring home a pay, paycheck. There's no apparent connection to the kingdom of Christ. Know that your conversation is not vain either. It's of value as you do it united to the Son of God and in His name. But do it, people of God, in His name. Don't forget to wash those toilets and change those diapers and make those meals and trudge off to work again for another day in His name and for His sake. 
His work, this is the point of the sermon. His work has a great value because He's God the Son. And God the Son, for His sake, has taken us into the family of faith. And now all of the work that we do, no matter how apparently menial it is, has value. You don't have a vain conversation any longer. And then finally, we are to honor this Son of God. That doesn't come from the Lord's Day as much as it comes from Psalm 2, but connect it to the Lord's Day. Who is Christ? Who is He? What do you say about Him? How do you identify Him? When others ask you about the one who is your Savior, what do you say? He's the eternal and natural Son of God. And He is my Lord because His blood that He shed for me was a precious blood. Now, the sermon has informed you in your mind of the truth of the Word of God. The Christ is God the Son, the only begotten Son of God, eternal Son of God, and you are adopted by grace for His sake. You know that. He has a a special work that he does and did, continues to do. You know that. Now will you go home and honor him? And will I? Will you kiss him? That's the question that Psalm 2 puts to you. Not with the kiss of betrayal as Judas in the garden It meant something outwardly to kiss someone. But Judas' kiss was a kiss of betrayal. It meant the opposite of what he meant when he took that action. But with a kiss, and I'll just go through all of the Old Testament passages, there are only a few, and what they signify. A kiss of agreement. And reconciliation, as when Jacob and Esau met and kissed. A kiss of adoration, as the unbelieving heathens do to their idols. A kiss of affection and love, as the woman who was healed by Jesus did to his feet when she was grateful for him. And a kiss of allegiance and loyalty as prophet Samuel did to the newly anointed king to show his honor and allegiance and respect. Kiss him with a kiss of agreement and reconciliation. Say it. Kiss him with a kiss of adoration. Do it. And with a kiss of affection and love and allegiance and loyalty. Or to put that in New Testament language, with faith, with believing Him, with trusting Him. Not with a hypocritical show as Judas, that it all looks so good, but it isn't intended. But with a kiss of sincerity that you believe the Lord Jesus, you trust Him, you come to Him, and you need Him. And that's what you're doing in church on a Sunday morning. Kiss Him.
with the kiss of honor. Confess him as you're doing today when you sit under the ministry of the word and you don't disagree with the word insofar as that word harmonizes with the word of God. Confess him with your mouth and say it. He is God the Son with a unique sonship different than any of our sonship. I trust him because his blood had a value that no one else's blood had. I love him because he's done a work for me that no one else could do. And I'm going to worship him all the days of my life. And after I die, I'm going to spend eternity worshiping him because he's God the Son. He's Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. And you who don't, remember the end of Psalm 2 also. He has a rod in his hand. He'll destroy anyone who does not kiss him with that kiss of honor. And he'll bless. Blessed are all they, Psalm 2 ends, that trust in him. That's the gospel. The blessedness of those who confess the Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, and trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. May we hear it, may we believe it, may we love it, may we confess it to one another, to our children, at work, in school, to our neighbors, in our youth, and as we're old. Enable us to give that honor to the Lord Jesus so that everyone may know that he is the Lord to the glory of thee, our Father. And what we have failed in that regard, Father, forgive us and sanctify us in that way that our conversation may be useful and purposeful and profitable. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.